So I thought there's some room for um, taking a, a little exploration of um, Germany in the um, 18th and 19th centuries and then to bring ourselves maybe back to the present day if, if we're able. So, um, so, so taking a step away from, from the United States and um, you know, a country that was founded on the notion of, of religious freedom and regardless of whether that value has been upheld in all the history of the United States, um, if we step into um, Germany in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, we, we see a very different picture, and we see a very different picture of the situation of Jews. But the Jews that I want to speak about today are Jews who very much, um, I think there's sources down there, um, are Jews who very much um, loved their, their host country and very much loved um, and admired their colleagues, but it was also a context in which um, their Judaism was was a question for the people around them. Okay, so and and it was a question for two reasons. I mean, for many reasons, but two of which I want to highlight. Um, so one kind of classical trope um, that you know dates very far back in history, but just for example, this was the the. Um, stated reason, for example, for the expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492 was that Jews um, are trying to convert people to Judaism. Jews are trying to missionize. And um, the assumption that stands behind that claim is that there's some that Jews have some notion that Gentiles um, can't achieve salvation you know, outside of the, of the Jewish framework. Okay, So that's like one big question to think about is, is there a notion that um, non-Jews have their own path to salvation outside of the Jewish framework. And then another question and another thing that Jews were accused of um, throughout history was the idea that um, Jewish law allows Jews to be un behave unethically toward Gentiles and to, um, there, that there's a different kind, there, there's a different ethics for, for Jews and for non-Jews. So there are two um, places where these types of conversations play out. One is, of course, in apologetics, right, which is when Jews kind of respond to these accusations in public and, and where their primary audience is non-Jews. And then, of course, there's also internal Jewish conversations. What do Jews really think about these questions? Sometimes there might be a disconnect, right? Jews might think internally that, yeah, you can steal from non-Jews, but then externally, of course, not highlight those, uh, those passages from our text. Um, that's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on today is is is, two, is it primarily two Jews who who very much whose inter, insider discourse and their outside apologetics discourse was um, aligned with one another, where they very much believed that um, Judaism contained universal ethical uh, obligations toward non-Jews, and also that Judaism um, was not something that that believe that um, that Gentiles needed to become Jewish in order to have salvation. That it was it, that it, it was that there was some kind of humanistic um, and universalistic aspect to Judaism. So, um, well, so let's get at these two. Sorry, everyone. I don't know if I should bring us up to speed. I think I think what I'm saying. I'll I'll kind of repeat the main questions when we come back to the conclusion. So let's. Let's actually go through some of these sources. Um, and the first set of sources is on this topic of um, 
do Jewish legal ethical obligations extend to Gentiles? Okay, and my question today is not to, to say yes or no, okay, but it's rather to talk about what did um, the people, what did the people that I'm talking about in, in early modern and modern um, Europe think about these questions? Okay, so the first two sources we're not going to look at um, inside, but basically these are two sources that are among the not so few that exist that, that reflect a dual ethical system, right? Um, that suggests that maybe it's okay to kill, for Jews to kill a non-Jew, certainly to steal from them, that's in the first source. In the second source you see some kind of ambivalence about that, but it's not for like profound universalistic ethical reasons, but for um, very um, uh, kind of subjective reasons that have to do with circumstances. So these are the kinds of texts that, that exist in the, in the Jewish corpus um, that, that, over that throughout history have been picked up on by um, uh, people who are hostile to Judaism to kind of highlight this thing. But it's not like they're making stuff up, right? Like, this is really there, okay? So the question is, what do you do with this? So I want to call our attention to a very interesting particular case in the 1880s um, in which... Um, in a town in Germany called Marburg, um, someone made the claim that the Talmud, um, for, because of containing texts like this, is basically an unethical text. Okay, so this is source number three. Um, a, a school teacher, at, at, an anti-Semitic, I should say, school teacher um, at a local rally made the following claim. A Jew that follows the Talmud and deceives Christian is a scoundrel in our eyes. Any Jew who doesn't follow the Talmud is a scoundrel in their eyes, so Jews are scoundrels no matter what they do. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Very, uh, you know, legal reasoning. Um, so this was the claim. Now, um, under the German Civil Code uh, in 1871, um, it was a crime to blaspheme God. Okay? And um, under this this civil code, this is source number four, which again, just for interest of time, we're not going to look at inside, but um, under this particular crime to blaspheme God, um, interestingly enough, Jews were able to actually bring um, trials, to, to actually um, bring people to court for blaspheming Judaism under the principle that blaspheming Judaism might also be uh, a case of blaspheming God. So, after this particular school teacher made this statement, um, the Jewish community actually brought him to trial to, to accuse him of blaspheming God. So the question was then, and this really happened, and these sorts of trials were not uncommon uh, in, in this time period. Um, what's interesting though is that here Judaism is the prosecutor, not the defendant. Oftentimes, historically, um, in these kinds of public disputes, Judaism would be the defendant, but the way that the case was constructed, it actually um, got flipped around that, the, that, that there, a, a defense of Judaism was required, um, because if you look at number five, these were the questions that the court was interested in, in answering in this trial, which uh, um, took place two years after the rally. Okay, so this is the bottom of page one. Whether the prescriptions of belief and of morality contained in the Talmud are seen as binding commandments for the believing Jew, and thus a slander of the Talmud is seen as a slander of the Jewish religious community, and then by extension of God, okay, under this blasphemy law. So, so the question here is really, um, how important is the Talmud for Jews? Um, if, 
If someone slanders the Talmud, is that really a slander of the Jewish religious community? Maybe Jews don't really think the Talmud is binding, and so maybe it's just like slandering, I don't know, some other random Jewish text that, um, you know, some medieval Jewish poetic text that is nice, it's part of the corpus, but um, isn't something that can be really seen as offensive to the entire community. So that was kind of one question. And then the, the other question is, does it say in the Talmud things like, the law of Moses applies only to Jews. On the, and on the other hand, it has no reference to Goyim, whom they are allowed to rob and deceive. So basically, question number two was, is it actually the case that the Talmud says that, um, Jew, that Jewish ethical codes don't apply to non-Jews, that Jews are allowed to rob and deceive non-Jews? Yes? Do they use the language Goyim in that document? Yeah, that's, this is a translation. Yeah. Um, so they use the word Goyim, yeah. Um, okay, so, so this is the question, and, and as we saw from the, the first sources that I brought, it is the case that such, claim, that, that such claims are made in the Talmud, and so the question now is what, um, what was being done, you know, how, how do you answer this question? Do you just say, yeah, um, B is true, it, it is the case that the law doesn't apply to, to non-Jews and that non-Jews are allowed to be robbed and deceived because there are some statements in the Talmud that say this? Or is there a different approach that can kind of get around this question? So obviously the context that we're speaking in is a public apologetic context. Um, and I'm going to bring you some um, quotes from Hermann Cohen, um, who was a who was a person who came who who was called as an expert witness on behalf of the uh, Talmud um, to 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 um, but on behalf of the prosecution, okay, to expertly testify um, the answers to these questions, okay. He was someone who was a professor of philosophy at the University of Marburg. He was a, a believing and practicing Jew, but he was also the only believing and practicing Jew in the entirety of Germany to be a professor of philosophy and to be a professor of a subject other than um, something in, in math and science, of which there, there were very few people as well, okay? So kind of in the entirety of academia in the country, he was in an extremely unique situation. He was, he was a believing and practicing Jew who was a professor of philosophy, and um, even though his field was not Talmud, he was educated in the Talmud, as most traditional Jews were, and so he was called to be an expert witness, and he, he taught in this particular town um, in Marburg, at the University of Marburg, where this trial was taking place. So we're going to talk a little bit about what Cohen says. Cohen is, is example number one of a Jew who lived in German society, who certainly experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, but he also believed profoundly in um, German culture, in German values, um, and in, a, in, in, in the possibility of a synthesis between Judaism and what he called Germanism, okay? And um, so, again, he's not someone who, who was, people now, often say about him that he was naive because one other interesting fact about Cohen is that um, he died in 1918 um, be still believing this stuff about a German-Jewish synthesis, but his wife um, was killed actually in a concentration camp in 1942. So his wife was younger than him and he didn't die so uh, old. Um, and so some people kind of use this fact as, as, as a testament to the fact that he, w he was profoundly naive about the culture and society in which he lived. Um, 
we're not going to you know talk about that now. The texts that we're talking about are from you know many decades before, but. Um, he was an example of someone who really, really thought a lot about these kinds of, what are the ethical obligations that Jews have to non-Jews? What is the relationship between Jews and their host society? So, he's, so the task that he was given was to answer these questions and, of course, to defend the Talmud in this context. Okay? And the, um, the place where Cohen um, decides to go is not to deny that these statements exist, because they do exist, but to rather... Um, say something much bigger and much more um, philosophical about what the Talmud is that could, um, that, that could respond to these questions in the negative. And he begins with um, uh, Leviticus 19.18, okay, um, the, the statement, which um, I, I brought, we're now on the top of page two, and um, so I brought you two translations of Yahafla Reyes Akamocha in the uh, left column there. Okay, so one of them is a German translation from, the, from Martin Luther's Bible um, from the 16th century, and one of, which is like the classic German translation of this phrase, okay? Which literally means you should love your most near one um, as yourself, okay? So the word Rea is translated as as literally the most near one, often translated as the neighbor, okay? And then we see in the King James Version, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so Cohen thinks that this translation of this phrase is a, has been a travesty and that this is kind of the source of the reason why um, non-Jews think that Judaism believes that um, Jews have different ethical obligations towards Jews and towards non-Jews. Because the most near one, okay, um, connotes an idea of proximity. You should love the person who's closest to you. So typically the person who's, like, proximately closest to you. Typically the person who's proximately closest to you, especially, you know, in the era before travel and, you know, roads and globalization where people lived near their family and their tribe. So um, the most near one would be your tribe, okay? So this would basically mean you should love your, your fellow tribe's person as yourself, okay? Or your neighbor is also, again, someone from, from your group. Um, Cohen thinks, though, that, that this is not what the word rea means at all, okay? And, and he um, draws on um, a text from, uh, on the passage from Leviticus 19.34, later in that same chapter, okay, which says, um, so this is the next Hebrew quote there, um, okay, so we have this exact phrase here, basically, um, which is a phrase which means that um, the citizen and the, the whole verse means the citizen and the stranger um, should be equal, okay, and you should love the stranger as yourself. Um, and so Cohen, for this reason and for several other reasons, thinks that the word rea actually ori in, originally in the Bible meant a stranger. It was a synonym for a stranger, okay? And um, this is not actually correct, by the way, but he really thought this. Um, so, um, like, philologically he was wrong. It doesn't mean stranger. It probably actually does mean something like someone who is more proximate to you. Um, if we... If, if I was taking this in a different direction, we could actually look at 
Leviticus 19 and spend more time on those verses and, and, and see what we think. But in any case, Cohen, for this reason and for other reasons that were good faith reasons, he believed that that via really meant you should love the stranger as yourself and that this was the correct original um, Jewish understanding of this phrase. Okay, and Cohen was fighting against notions like what we see in, in number seven, which also animated accusations against Judaism. So this is a quote from um, a Lutheran pastor, okay, in the 1800s. He says the following, um, and this is kind of like a typical paradigmatic understanding of, of Judaism. Christianity finally released the ideas of God and of the laws from the nationalistic sense they had carried in Judaism and presented them in more complete clarity. God in Christianity as the most perfect spirit, the Father filled with love for all peoples. The law, again in Christianity, as the emanation of his holy and good will. Instead of being the national God of Judaism, he was now the God of all humanity. The neighbor, or again, this German word there, the most near one, the most near one, previously merely um, the Volksgenosse, oh, sorry, there's a typo there, it should be the Volksgenosse with an S, but anyway, um, previously the, the neighbor, the Rea, was the member of the tribe, okay, um, was now every human being. And virtue, previously slavish obedience to positive laws, was now a free participation of the heart in a recognized good. So this kind of was a typical understanding of Judaism, which was that Judaism was very nationalistic, very tribal-oriented, whereas Christianity was very um, universal, and, and the advent of Christianity liberated um, the notion of the law, the notion of God, from these kind of nationalistic and particularistic um, fetters that they were you know, bound in, and, and, and created this notion of a God of humanity. Of, a, of loving your neighbor, meaning love all human beings. Okay, so this is what Cohen is... He was saying it, that Jews were released? Well, the ideas were released, and Jews who chose to become Christian, Jews who chose to follow those ideas and, and, and become Christian, right, and become followers of Jesus were released. But of course, the implication is that Jews who remained Jewish were not released, right? They, they didn't, um, you know... They remained tribal. Exactly. They remained tribal and they didn't, um, you know, they, they remained tied up to these very particularistic and antiquated ideas. Okay, so Cohen, um, on the other hand, he says in, in his expert testimony in, uh, in, in Source 8 in 1888, he says, it is generally incorrect to understand the word rea, which means the fellow human being, okay? And again, it also means, it means the stranger and Cohen has these ways that he... Um, gets from the stranger to the fellow human being. He basically thinks the stranger, the concept of a stranger is a stand-in for every human being, uh, every fellow human being. So it is generally incorrect to understand the word rea, um, I have an extra source sheet, by the way, um, as the fellow human being, uh, which means the fellow human being, as the Volksgenosse, the member of the tribe. I only regret here that I must speak as if I were a philological expert. Reyes so little stands specifically for the Volksgenossen that it, it entirely becomes the mere other with one another means in the Hebrew of the Pentateuch a person with his Reyes. So here what Cohen is referring to is this notion of Ishel Reyehu, which, does, which is a biblical phrase, which means, you know, one to another. Um, you know, a person, people, someone who is speaking Ishel Reyehu is someone speaking to, to another. 
Um, and so he uses that as one example, in addition to the notion of the ahaftam lager kamocha, to prove that the word rea has this more universal meaning. Okay. Um, and then Cohen says, and you can see that his entire life, Cohen is really bothered by this. So in Source 9, we have a quote from 1918, which is from the, um, the last book that Cohen wrote before he died. I mentioned that he died in 1918. Okay, he said that... Um, then, to the deepest harm that Jewish monotheism suffered from all kinds of defamation and misinterpretation um, happened because the notion of neighborly love was not attributed to it, um, and this would not have occurred if the original word rea had not been wrongly translated neighbor, okay, or again, the most near one. So Cohen thinks that this is actually the source of um, all misunderstandings of Judaism and people who then see those lines in the Talmud the reason that they understand the, those lines in the way that they understand them as Judaism having an alter, alternate ethical code is because they're already primed to think this way by believing that already in the Pentateuch already in the Torah the notion of the Ahafta Lerecha Kamocha meant this tribal um, ethical code that only you know, ethical love was only required to, to the members of the tribe what Cohen do, then continues to do in the expert testimony is he basically argues that, sure, there's stuff like this in the Talmud. Um, the Talmud is a, is a law code, and it's not just a law code. It's a collection of legal statements. It's a collection of stories, agadot. Um, it's a huge corpus that was written by human beings, he says. And he says that anything that's written by human beings is bound to have moral failings in it. Um, and he says this is true of, of church law as well, of canon law. Anything that is a law code that human beings wrote um, is going to have um, moral failings because human beings are fallible. But he says that if you, someone who's an expert in the Talmud will understand, though, that you don't take a sentence here or a sentence there, this is his claim, rather you try to understand what is the guiding principle of the Talmud, what is the guiding concept of the Talmud. And he says that as he, as a philosopher, is uniquely in a position to do this kind of reading of not just looking at sentence by sentence, but rather looking at the big picture and looking for the guiding principles. And he makes this claim that um, the guiding principle of the Talmud as a whole is something like this universalistic understanding of Yahafta Lerecha Kamocha. Um, and I'm not going to take you through his proofs here, okay? So I'm just going to uh, throw it out there. And in particular, he, he, he argues for the significance of the notion of the, um, the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noah, the seven Noahide commandments, the seven Noahide laws, as the guiding principle of the Talmud. And he, he, brings, he marshals a bunch of texts to prove this point. And he argues that basically from this notion of the Ahavta Lerecha Kamocha in the Bible, which he says means you should love the stranger, okay? He says that the stranger in the Bible is the, the, um, the resident alien, okay? It's the, it's the person who lived um, among the, the people. It's the stranger who lived among the people as a citizen in their country, okay? In the Hebrew Republic that, or, um, that uh, you know, this term people called it a Hebrew Republic, but, or whatever, in the Hebrew country um, that, that, that the Bible describes, um, there were citizens who were the Hebrews or the Israelites, and then there were strangers who lived among them and also were subject to the law code and also had rights and things like that. So Cohen then argues that once you get to rabbinic times, when there's no longer sovereignty or um, you know a government um, 
then the, the rabbis talk about the notion of the Noahide, who's basically, um, the, who, who they basically talk about as the equivalent of what the stranger was in biblical times. It's someone who lives among the people, who, um, doesn't, who, who's not the same as the people, but the Noahide, of course, is someone who basically keeps the seven commandments, which are, um, as Cohen describes them, to set up law courts, okay? And then um, these basic moral codes like don't kill, don't steal, um, don't, uh, don't commit um, adultery slash incest. Um, and so basically Cohen understands this as this basic moral law code plus the notion of, of setting up a legal system. And um, essentially what Cohen understands is that the Noahide becomes in rabbinic literature what the stranger was in the Bible, and it's someone who is an equal among the Jewish people, but who's not exactly the same, okay? And he understands the Noahide laws as an alternative means towards salvation. So now there's this rabbinic concept that um, the righteous Gentiles have a place in the world to come. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And Cohen understands, again, through rabbinic sources, that the righteous Gentiles are people who observe the Noahide laws. So um, in order to attain salvation, you all, if you're Jewish, you need to follow the 613 commandments, you need to follow Jewish law, but if you're not Jewish, all you need to do is follow the Noahide laws. Okay, let's hold that as a placeholder for now, and let's keep looking at, um, for, for another moment, Cohen's understanding of um, So on the bottom of page 2, in source 10, Cohen explains a little bit why it doesn't make any sense in the context of Leviticus 19 for v'ahaftel recha kamocha to mean you should love your, just your fellow tribe person, okay? So he says, we can understand how the acknowledgement of the other as the fellow countrymen only arose from a biased misinterpretation. Not to speak of the fact that it is senseless to say love your fellow countrymen as yourself if the love of man, meaning if the love of humans in general, has not yet even been discovered. Either the national feeling is already so strong that I feel in my fellow countryman my blood and my image, in which case the commandment is superfluous, or the national feeling still has to be taught, in which case, however, the intensification of kamocha, right, of as yourself, is only intelligible if the notion of the fellow countryman has already been permeated by the concept of the human being in general. So basically Cohen is saying, and you don't have to agree with him, but Cohen is making this claim that um, if people were already profoundly nationalistic and already felt this strong sense of feeling with their fellow country people, then he thinks it would be superfluous to command people to love them because it's, it's so like just in your blood and in your instincts and in your guts that you don't need a commandment for it, okay? But then he's saying, on the other hand, um, if there wasn't this national feeling at all yet, such that it needed to be commanded, first you would have to, ex you would have to command people something broader, which is to just love other people in general. Because he goes on to say in the bottom of, the, of this um, quote that basically, um, otherwise, um, three lines from the bottom, otherwise my fellow countryman is my neighbor with whom I quarrel, or the poor man who hates the rich who oppress him. The moral concept of the fellow countryman has as its indispensable supposition the general concept of man. So what he's kind of talking about here is that political communities are actually kind of arbitrary and constructed. Oftentimes the people who are, 
who are nearby might be people with whom we, we fight. Our, the notion of a fellow country person, right, might be someone who really um, is, I don't know, they're encroaching on your property, their, their cow is making a lot of noise at night and, and you can't sleep or whatever, you know, things like that. Or if, someone, or, or if someone is poor, they might, you know, hate the rich landowner nearby who has so many things that they don't have. So um, Cohen is basically saying that to command the notion of loving your fellow countryman, you have to actually first have a broader idea of just loving human beings just for who they are. Um, because, and only then can you then say, I love this person who lives near you and who really annoys you and bothers you. Now again, we might not agree with this logic, but this is his claim, is that original, and he really believed it, that in the original context of Leviticus 19, it doesn't make any sense for the Ahasal Recha Kamocha for all sorts of reasons, right? Both uh, to mean love your fellow countrymen or love the member of your tribe. So he has um, some philological reasons, right? That, that we have the similar phrase of love the stranger as yourself. And then also from elsewhere in the Bible, the notion that ish el re'ehu means just one person to another human being. And then finally, he has this kind of logical explanation of that this would be of superfluous law or it wouldn't make sense. Um, yeah. Is the assumption that Rea is no, nowhere else to be found so, elsewhere the word Rea? So, he, so there, that's not an assumption because it is to be found elsewhere. Rea, how is it defined? So he's making this claim that in some of the places where it is elsewhere, like for example this phrase, ish el re'ehu, yeah. it includes the word rea, that it means just a mere other, just an other in general. It's funny because where, where I learned Hebrew, we always see the language in the olden days, rea meant chaveh, it was like a friend. A friend. Yeah. And I was wondering whether it was ever translated as just a chaveh in other contexts. As just a friend? So, you know... Rayim? Right. Chaveh Right. Um, so the word appears in, in a whole bunch of places, and, um, you know, it means different things in different places, but it, um, you know, in this context, right, it's never translated as love your friend as yourself. Um, it is translated as love your neighbor or love your, again, fellow countrymen. Sorry? Oh, okay, nothing. Um, right, or your fellow, so there are, again, you would have, you would look in a concordance and you would look at all the different places, and it does have a, a connotation of friendship in some places, it does have a connotation of other, and Cohen chooses which ones he thinks are the right um, text that will shed light on this text, right? There are words that mean something in one context and not in another, and, and, and what it means in the other context doesn't have bearing on that context, well, right? reflecting how he feels. And of course, it is absolutely reflecting how he feels. Okay, so, um, so before we head to this, this next section of, on the question of do righteous Gentiles have a place in the world to come, I just wanted to kind of close that discussion of, of um, the notion of, of love your neighbor as yourself. So... Um, Again, we have these internal and these external Jewish conversations that I mentioned at the very, very beginning before some of the people were in the room. There's the question of what do Jews say about Judaism and, 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 and what it says about ethical obligations to non-Jews. What do they say among Jews and what do they say in apologetic context um, to the non-Jewish world? So the, the texts that I've brought you are based in an apologetic context where Cohen is serving as an expert witness um, in the context of a trial. 
But some of the other texts that I brought you, like the religion of reason out of the sources of Judaism, is are Cohen's Jewish writings, and this is something that he absolutely said to among Jews as well. So he's not saying different things in the two different contexts. Um, he very, very strongly believed this was a, a core Jewish value, and not only that, um, Cohen's Jewish philosophy as a whole developed over many years from the 1870s into 1918 when he died, um, continued to pick up on the same things and passages that he mentioned in that expert testimony in 1888. The, the meaning of the Kamocha as um, love the stranger or love the fellow human being as the original Jewish meaning, not the Christian meaning, not what Jesus was saying in opposition to the Old Testament um, you know, nationalistic version, okay, the, the primacy of the, um, the Noahide and the idea that the Noahide is um, this universalistic human being that anyone can be, that Judaism very much, and, and rabbinic literature very much um, thinks as someone who's, you know, on equal standing with Jews, and um, just more broadly, notions of, of universalistic ethics, uh, um, these are Cohen's ideas that he continues, that he writes in, to Jewish audiences, to non-Jewish audiences, um, and this is something that he believed until the end of his life. Okay, so the next set of sources that we'll look at are um, about the question of whether righteous Gentiles or have a place in the world to come. And again, as I mentioned in the very opening remarks, this is, a, this is another topic that reflects the attitude that Jews have towards non-Jews. If they think that that Gentiles don't have a path to the world to come or to salvation within Judaism, then they might either want to convert Gentiles to Judaism, um, or on the other hand, they might just say, all right, these people are, are not saved, and, you know, and that's problematic in all sorts of ways. So, um, as I already mentioned, Cohen absolutely believed that um, this was a, a, an important Jewish value, and in fact, he believed that the righteous Gentile and the Noahide were the exact same thing in rabbinic literature, and he brings some passages to support this. But what I want to talk about now is this particular passage from Maimonides on the top of page three, okay, which becomes very problematic for both for Hermann Cohen and for Moses Mendelssohn a um, hundred years earlier, a hundred plus years earlier, okay. Um, who, who, similar to Cohen, was a, a, a Jew uniquely situated in a non-Jewish context who was, um, just like Cohen, was the only professor of philosophy who was Jewish. Mendelssohn was, um, you know, a full-fledged member a um, hundred years earlier of, in, of Enlightenment German society. But he was, he lived in Berlin and he was known as the Socrates of Berlin and he, you know, he trafficked among, um, among the elite intellectual elite of non-Jews, but he had a special permit to live in Berlin because Jews were not actually allowed to live there at that time, and his family got a special permit, and when he died, his family actually no longer was allowed to live in Berlin because it was so um, beholden to, their, their, their allowance was so beholden to the fact that Mendelssohn was this, um, this unique figure who was uniquely um, allowed to be part of these communities. But nonetheless, Mendelssohn too had an extraordinarily positive um, image of non-Jews. So, in this Maimonides passage, okay, Maimonides says, um, and I'll read it in Hebrew and translate it, he says, So whoever accepts the seven commandments, again, of the of B'nai Noach, the seven Noahide laws, and is careful to observe them, 
So this person is among the righteous um, Gentiles, or among the righteous of the nations. And he has a place in the world to come. Um, so, but this is only the person who accepts these commandments and does them because God, because Hakadosh Baruch Hu, because God um, actually commanded them in the Torah. So it's the reason the person has a place in the world to come only if they, not just if they follow the Noahide laws, but if they accept that these were commanded by God and taught through Moses as laws that had been previously commanded to the children of Noah. But if he did them from his own kind of reasoning or from his own just thinking that these laws make sense as things that moral people should observe, okay? So a person who follows the seven Noahide commandments from their own kind of knowledge or wisdom or belief in morality and not from the fact that they were commanded by God to the children of Noah as described by Moses, right? That person is not actually considered one of the righteous among the nations. So this text basically says, yes, righteous Gentiles have a place in the world to come, but only ones who, who believe essentially in the Jewish God and in, in the commandment for, um, of the Torah to Moses. So Moses Mendelssohn, a hundred and something years before um, Hermann Cohen, you know, a hundred and like ten years before Hermann Cohen in, in, the, in his expert testimony, um, is already extremely appalled by this. Um, and um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let's just look at the third paragraph of Source 12. He, Mendelssohn says, Maimonides added the restriction only if they observed the Noahide laws not merely as laws of nature, but as laws revealed by God in an extraordinary manner. This addition, however, has no authority in the Talmud. And then he goes on, and again, because we're, uh, we only have a few minutes left, um, I won't read the rest of the passage. He goes on to say that Maimonides himself, in a different source, in a letter to a student named Chastai, Rabbi Chastai Halevi, actually says the opposite of this. Okay, um, And he's kind of appalled by the fact that Maimonides... Um, said this thing. And, and, and Mendelssohn says, to the contrary, that Judaism is very much not in the business of, of missionizing and not even in the business of convincing Gentiles to believe um, that Judaism was the source of the, of the seven Noahide laws. As long as they believe that they're laws of nature or that they're just fundamental human laws, um, that's all they need to have a place in the world to come. Now, the, the context of this Mendelssohn passage is something called an open letter to Lavater, okay, which is in 1769. This was a letter that Mendelssohn wrote after a friend of his who was a Christian had actually written an open letter to Moses Mendelssohn in, uh, in the dedication of a... It, he dedicated a book that he wrote about Christianity. He dedicated the book to Mendelssohn. And in the dedication, he basically said, Mendelssohn, you're a smart guy. You're, you're an honest guy. I've admired you. I've admired our friendship. But I, when you read this book, I want you to really think, if the things that I'm saying make sense to you, you should follow your principles and you should convert to Christianity. And Mendelssohn felt that this put him in a very precarious and uncomfortable position. And understand, his legal position was very precarious to begin with, right? He was only in Berlin 
based on a special right that was given just to him and his family. And, um, you know, in that time period, it, it wasn't just like that it was awkward. It was actually really complicated for him. And so he had to respond to this. And he wrote an open letter to the guy that he published, back to Lavater, that he published. And in the letter, he, he talks a lot about how Judaism is not, you know, doesn't want to interfere with Christianity at all. And, and, and um and believes that Gentiles have a place in the world to come. And then he also says, and don't, don't also ask me to, to do this, right? So he defends, he, and the, the position was awkward for him because he couldn't argue for the superiority of Judaism because that would not fly um, in that context, but he had to kind of argue for something that would allow him to remain Jewish and not um, have to kind of fo- follow up on this challenge, but also would... Um, and would convey something positive about Judaism. So he kind of argues for this separation, but a key notion for him is the idea of that righteous Gentiles have a place in the world to come. Um, and then he mentions just in passing the, the Maimonides passage, and he says that Maimonides made this up. So that's Mendelssohn in his conversations, in his public apologetic conversations to the outside world. Now Mendelssohn also had a, a very good relationship with Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who was a great um, rabbi, a, a great, I mean, it's uh, anachronistic to say orthodox, but a great traditional rabbi um, from the time period. And in his own private letters to Emden, Mendelssohn actually said, where did Maimonides get this from? And he, and he really is, is quite upset with Maimonides for saying this thing in, in the Laws of Kings 8.11 because he thinks that it's extraordinarily problematic and, he, and they have a whole back and forth about this. So again, here's an example of someone who's saying the same thing in his insider and outsider conversations. The only thing is that in his conversation to the outside, he's very confident that Maimonides made this up and let's just leave it alone. With Emden, he, he struggles to kind of understand where this is coming from. So the last thing that I wanted us to conclude with here is, is taking us back to the 19th century and to, and to Cohen to see something that Cohen says back in that same expert testimony um, about the Jewish ethos more broadly. And he says this. Um, We're in source 13, the bottom of page 3, onto the top of 4. Here lies the difficulty for each religion, insofar as it thinks human beings as believers in its kingdom of God. So there's something that's difficult for all religions if if they think of people who practice the religion as believers and who, and who are part of their kingdom of God. In the canon, however, a corrective was given, he says. In the Jewish canon, there's a corrective given to this notion that, believer, that human beings have to be believers within your own religious sphere. He says this moment lies in the qualification which the biblical concept of the stranger has found in the Talmudic concept of the son of Noah. The state legal institution of the Noahide belongs to the oldest statement of the Mishnah. He says, more than the seven Noahide laws are not required. The belief in the Jewish God is not required. The Noahide is thus not a believer, but nevertheless is a citizen. Therefore, this institution of the Noahide seems to construct a singular fact of the politics of religion, whose clarification may comprise in the final analysis only the power of the monotheistic basic idea. Okay, so lots of philosophical words. Basically what he's saying here is as follows. That he thinks that there's something very unique about the position of the Noahide. Um, if we project the Noahide back onto the biblical context, the Noahide is basically someone who's not a believer in the religion, who's not required to be a believer, I'm almost done, um, who's not a believer, but who is a citizen. This notion that you could have someone in your 
in your state, which again, all states then were religious states. There wasn't a separation of church and state um, historically. So um, there's someone who's not a believer, but who's still a citizen of your state and has rights and, and things like that. And basically, Cohen claims this is, this is the essence of monotheism, which is the idea that, the, that God created all human beings equal. And this he, he credits to Judaism. Again, you could say it's apologetic or not, but that's what he does. Um, but he thinks that this has this um, contributed something to um, political theory more broadly that would, this notion was something that would then kind of make possible later notions of, of separation of church and state and religious toleration and, and more broadly um, equality of, of ethical obligations to all people. So um, I'm personally not making a case for whether this is an original Jewish idea or not, but what I think is interesting in these in these passages that we looked at today is to see how, how people um, reflected on, on their debts to their non-Jewish neighbors in the context of um, both hostile and non-hostile environments, right? I would say Germany for Mendelssohn and Cohen was a mix of hostile and not hostile. Um, they were uniquely privileged people, but they, but they were also aware of the, of the hostility and they, they had same conversations inside and outside, which I think is really important. And um, I think we can bring some of this to thinking about um, obligations of Jews to, uh, to their neighbors in, in the American context today. Um, obviously a very, very different context. Um, and if I had more time, I could, I could spell out more about that. But um, I hope this was you know, something that was a fitting uh, honoring of, of Jack Flamel's legacy. And thanks all of you for being here today. <laughs>